guidance to being under the guidance and direction of his heavenly father. And so he was showing us that he was no longer under the authority of his mother, so to speak. He was stepping into a position where he would exercise things that would show that he was under the authority of his heavenly father. And so here we are in John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22 is what we'll look at today. And we'll see how Jesus is stepping into that role. He's stepping into that responsibility. So if you could turn back or there with me to John chapter 2, we'll read verses 12 through 22. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem to be there. In the temple, he found, these, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus Dear Heavenly Father, we, again, just think about the songs we sang this morning, uh, the fact that you give and take away, uh, the fact that your love is strong, Lord. We are not only humble, Lord, by the fact that you allow us to have a relationship with you, but we are also in joy, Lord, overjoyed by the fact that you have called us to yourself and that you saved us uh, from our sin. So God, today, as we look at your son and we look at the demonstration that he performed here in the temple. We pray that you would help us to understand and see what it is you're trying to teach us and what it is you're trying to help us to, to grow through. God, we love you. And again, we thank you for this word. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, after performing that miracle in uh, Cana, Jesus goes on to Capernaum. He leaves Cana and he travels on to Capernaum. Matthew 4 teaches us of that account, and he, he, Matthew actually tells us a few more things about what was going on during that, that travel. You can kind of see where Cana is, and Jesus goes up over to that area right above that near Corrosion and uh, Capernaum. One thing that Matthew reveals about this journey to Capernaum is that um, it occurred right after Jesus had experienced that temptation from Satan over in the wilderness. This is important because it reveals to us that Christ's reach of his authority went beyond just his, the physical realm that he was in. His reach of authority was even over, over Satan and all the principalities in the air as well. You recall what, what, what Jesus said to Satan. He says that it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Another thing that we find in looking at the history there is that uh, Matthew records for us that Jesus was extremely busy when he was in Capernaum. When he was there, he was actually healing people, uh, healing disease, curing sickness. It says in his account in Matthew chapter 4, he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people, and his fame had spread throughout all of Syria. 
great crowds had followed him from Galilee to Decapolis. And so you can kind of see that all throughout Capernaum, all beyond there into Decapolis, there were people following him before he would actually enter into Jerusalem. And so he had developed a sense of a, a, sense of a following. It wasn't as though he was just, it was just him and a few other people. It was Jesus and a throng of people that would walk into uh, Jerusalem. And he'd come there to join in the ceremony that was practiced every year, the Passover. Um, surely his, his previous demonstrations in the region would have encouraged those who were traveling from Capernaum, from Samaria, from Decapolis, who were either God-fearing, God-fearing Gentiles or Jews to go along with him. And so everyone was coming down to Jerusalem to take part in those um, Passover festivities. Uh, Jesus spent days proclaiming the kingdom of heaven to those who were in Galilee. He was calling men and women to change lives. And this wind that he would build up, this, this spiritual wind, as it were, that was stirring up and blowing the dust from the eyes of those people in that region would also continue to blow up uh, the people or blow the dust away from the eyes of the people who were in Jerusalem by giving them light and clarity to what God was planning to do. And so stepping into Jerusalem, he continues that work. He continues the work of, of bringing clarification and clarity. For those who didn't honor God, he wanted them to know that he knew their intentions. He wanted them to understand that he knew what was in their hearts. We saw later on in verse 26 that, that Jesus knew the intentions of man. He knew what was in man. And so in this scene where we see him uh, creating a stir, he's revealing that, hey, I know what's in you guys. I know why you're doing this. I know what you're doing, and I'm not very happy with it. And so through this display, he's determined to inform them that their hearts were actually the target of his rebuke. You could say that the, the actual actions that they were doing were, were the target, but in reality, their hearts were the target of that rebuke that he would put forth. In the Word of God, we discover that when he searches our hearts, he brings to light those deep things that keep us from serving him more effectively. Once we've been searched by him and he reveals those intentions that are in us, his desire then is to clean that stuff out and bring us to a place where we can more honor God with our lives. We can more respect God and revere him uh, with our lives. This should be our all-consuming passion, that we respect him, that we honor him, that we glorify him in what we do. This is what he expected of those, of those priests. Those priests who were in that temple had a responsibility. They had a responsibility to help those who would come into that temple know God. They had a responsibility to protect those people from others who might be taking advantage of them. And so Jesus was upset or disappointed that they weren't doing that. The purpose of John's gospel, really the purpose of his entire ministry, was to guide people into an understanding of, or knowledge of who Christ is. Um, he's the Lamb of God. He's God in human form. And so in, in being such, one thing John wants us, to, well, wants us to understand is that there are certain principles that will help us in knowing who this God is and how we are to have a relationship with him. In John's letters, he emphasizes this truth that to know Christ is to love him. The humbling reality is that to, to love Christ is to actually honor him. We can't say we love him if we don't honor him with our lives. In the same sense, we can't say that we honor him with our lives if we don't practice a sense of reverence or, or an attitude of, of respect toward who he is. This event that we have in John chapter 2 helps us to see what that respect should look like what the respect toward Christ should look like, and really what, the, what respect toward Christ requires of us. 
as believers who follow him. We say we love him. Well, then what, are the, our, what is our responsibility? What are we to do to demonstrate that love, to demonstrate that reverence, to demonstrate that we truly respect and honor him? Well, the first thing we see in this, in this passage is that to respect Christ, we first must remember why he came. We must remember why he came. And you'll see that these things, they all begin with the letter R-E-S-P-E-C-T. So it should be easy to follow. But, um, but we, we want to remember why he came. This is how we demonstrate that we respect and love him. Verse 12 reads again. He says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Everything that Christ did, every town that he visited, every conversation he engaged in, he did with a purpose. He had a very intentional reason for doing what he did. We had the map up earlier of the area and the region. We see Jesus, he goes to Capernaum. He doesn't go down to Jerusalem first. He first goes to Capernaum. And the reason he goes to Capernaum is he wants to demonstrate to the Gentiles that God's lo God loves them. God cares for them. God wants to know them. And so after he has set this tone, he then takes the trip down to Jerusalem. As was mentioned during uh, our discussion of, of Matthew's account of his gospel, of, of Jesus' moves, we see that he, he did these things for a reason, but we also see in Matthew's account that these things, this move to Capernaum, this move to the Galilee region, was actually a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a fulfillment of prophecy given to us in Isaiah chapter 9. I think it's going to be up on the screen. If not, uh, we see in Matthew chapter 4, yeah, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. For that, from that time on, Jesus began, pre began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we see Jesus going to Capernaum, going to this Galilee region, because that is what was prophesied about him. In other words, he, he moves with a purpose. He has a reason for doing everything that he does. This truth is undeniable. It's a, the heart of the message that we proclaim and, and the message and the reason that we exist as believers is that Christ desires to reveal himself to those who live in darkness. He desires to reveal who he is to those who otherwise don't know him. And so that's why that's the first thing he did, that he did when he goes to Capernaum. Jesus came to those who were deemed outcasts by the establishment, the, the religious establishment. He goes to Capernaum, really a region where a lot of people had been uh, forsaken or, or denied treatment by the religious authorities in, in, in various areas and regions. And so he goes, to these people and he goes to these people and he says to them, hey, I know they've rejected you, but God doesn't reject you. I know they don't want to come up here and see about you and take care of the needs that you have and see to the issues that you're dealing with and help you understand who God is, but I do. God cares. And this is what he wants to make clear to him. And so he comes down to this place, this temple, and he sees that uh, they weren't doing that, and he wants to set things straight. Uh, thankfully, Jesus thought uh, these people in, in Capernaum were good enough or, or worthy enough to, um, to, to receive his love and, and compassion. Not only do we find that, that Jesus, um, not only must we remember why he came as we demonstrate our respect toward Christ, but we also must expect him to arrive at the right time. 
you know, if we are to respect God, if we are to revere God, we should expect him to arrive at the right time when he's supposed to arrive. Look again in verse 13. He says, the Passover, of the, Jews, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, we've already talked about the fact that the timing was perfect. The timing was just the way he intended it to be. And we, we realize here that, that this is how God works throughout Scripture. He does things in the timing that he deems necessary to do them. Um, he arrives to Jerusalem at a time when his fame had grown. Yet his popularity had not grown far enough or to the degree that those who would ultimately sentence him to death would have come after him, would have seek, sought to hurt him at that point. He knew, however, that the time to stir things up was now. He only had about three years of ministry. As a matter of fact, we'll see later that he only really attended two Passovers in his life. The third Passover was one that he died before actually attending, right before his crucifixion. But Jesus knew that his time was short. And so in that short time, he had to make his point clear that God had a plan for Israel and he had a plan for the Gentiles. He wanted those Gentiles to know that, that to worship God in the temple was the right thing to do. It was the right place to go. The problem was in the people who were running that temple. He wanted these Gentiles to understand that just as they had been rejected by the religious establishment, these leaders also were rejected by the God who had originally called them. As I said before, we see th three cases actually where, G where John records uh, Jesus attending a Passover. We saw it here in, in uh, John chapter 2. We also see it in John chapter 6 where he attends the Passover in Galilee. So it's, it's, it's very interesting that he actually attends the Passover. Uh, not, he doesn't come down for a second Passover to Jerusalem. He stays in Galilee with the people who he was ministering to and, and participates in Passover activities with them. This second Passover, the one that was mentioned in chapter 6, is the one he'd attended in Galilee, and it was important because it demonstrated again that his focus was in helping the lost and catering to those who had, um, I'm sorry, not catering to those who had opposed his work. Um, in fact, he was committed, he was so committed to these people during that time that he actually didn't go down six month, months later to the Feast of Booths. Turn over in uh, John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, right after the Passover feast, there were about four other feasts that occurred between the Feast of, I'm sorry, five other feasts that occurred between the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Booths. And so after the Passover, Jesus would have, and most Jews would have, gone down to Jerusalem to participate in the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot, or the, uh, the Feast of, Tab of Tabernacles. John chapter 7, verses uh, 1 through 9 tell us this about Jesus' timing. He says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here, and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. And so his brothers are saying to him, hey, if you want people to understand who you are, you have to come down like everyone else to Jerusalem to participate in the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, Jesus says to him, for in verse 6 it says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to, the, to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. 
After this saying, he remained in Galilee. And so we see that Jesus says, hey, you know, my time, it's not time for me to be there. And because it's not time for me to be there, I'm not, although they may be expecting me to come, I'm not going to be going. Now, what does this teach, about, teach, us, teach us about Christ's timing? It teaches us that he moves when the time is right. He moves when it's time for him to do so. Um, you know, we may feel that he's not always punctual, but we realize in his actions that he comes exactly when he's supposed to be there. And so not only does respect require that we remember why he came, and not only does respect for Christ require that we expect him to arrive when, he's, when the time is right, when, it's, when he's supposed to arrive, but also we see that respect for Christ requires that we see what he sees when examining our lives. Respecting Christ, honoring him, means that we see what he sees when, we, when he examines our lives. Look again at verse 14 of, uh, of John chapter 2. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And so you can imagine this. Jesus is there with all of his all these people that had followed him, followed him up there. And, he, and when he gets there, he sees a lot of things wrong. He sees a lot of problems. He sees some issues um, in that temple. When he arrives, his mission is to make um, this, this place a little bit better than it was before he, he got there. Uh, this is what we kind of find in, in the temple here. I think we have an image of the actual uh, tabernacle, or the temple itself, maybe not. But um, if, if you've ever seen it, uh, Herod's temple, when it was completed, it was actually a, a compound. You know, the, the, there, were the, there was a temple proper, which was in the middle of, of the area. And then there was the surrounding area where uh, the, the Gentiles would be when they would come to the temple. Because many God-fearing Gentiles would come to the temple during Passover in order to participate in some of the activities. The problem was that those who were not Jews could not actually go into the inner courts. So there were actually signs on the outside of the inner courts that said, hey, if you, as a non-Jew, step beyond this wall, the penalty is death. And so in that area, that little region, the, the actual word that, that um, John uses to describe the temple when he says this is actually a word that doesn't mean the temple proper, but the region around the temple proper. In that region, he finds that these people were selling uh, sheeps and, and uh, pigeons and various different things. He also saw people uh, giving money to people as they were coming into the temple. Now, what does this mean? The, these money changers were actually people that were responsible for helping everyone who had come from different regions exchange money to the local area so that they could pay the temple tax. Because everyone, every male above the age of 20 was required when he came to the temple to pay a temple tax. And so these money changers, because it was pretty expedient or convenient for them, they would set up little booths to exchange money, and in doing so, they would charge a little more than they would have in normal situations because they knew it was a little urgent. They knew that they needed the money to pay the, the temple tax. And so we see Jesus saying, hey, you guys are taking advantage of these people who have followed me up here. Not only that, we see these, uh, these animal salesmen. I don't know what you, otherwise you would call them. But we see these, these people selling animals, and, and you ask the question, well, why? There, there it is. That's the one I was talking about. Um, these animal salesmen were in the area because the, the Jews or the non-Jews and the Jews who would come, actually the Jews who would come down from their different regions would not necessarily bring with them animals that they would use in the temple for sacrifice. And so what they would do is they would set up tables where they could buy those animals at the location. 
And of course, if you knew that people really needed this stuff and you wanted to take advantage of them, what you do? Instead of charging, you know, a denarii for, or two denarii for a pigeon, you might charge seven because you knew they needed it. And so Jesus says, hey, that's not right. I see what you're doing, and that's not right. And then not only that, we have the, the Pharisees who were kind of walking in and out of that inner region who saw this stuff going on, had seen it going on for years, but never did anything about it. You know, maybe it was because they were getting kickbacks from people at the table. Maybe because, you know, the, some of the guys had like, you know, cousins or something running tables and they would get a little, you know, money from that. We don't know why, but for whatever reason, the Pharisees didn't do anything about it. And so Jesus saw that. He saw their, their behavior or lack of, of, of response and he didn't like it. He wanted to do something about it. You know, one could understand um, why later in John chapter 6, Jesus didn't go back down there to Jerusalem for the Passover. He stayed back in Galilee. Because when he had come down the first time, he knew that things were not right. Things were not the way they should have been. It's as though Jesus was saying at that point, do you see the problem? Do you see what you've done wrong? Do you see how you've, you've left uh, what the Father had called you to be when he first established this place? Evidently, they didn't. they didn't. After seeing the problem and causing others to see it as well, Jesus goes on and he takes a step further. He sees the problem. He probably in some form or fashion acknowledges and says something about the problem. And then he takes it a step further. He goes on and he cleans house. Look at verses 15 and 16. This is kind of probably the, the scene that we all think of here. Making a whip of cords, verse 15. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, what we see in that, in that particular verse here, or those two, two verses, is we see that respect for Christ requires me to put away things that prevent me from knowing and loving him more. To put away things that keep me from knowing and loving Christ more. You know, just as this is not the only incident where Jesus clears out the temple, well, just as this is not the only Passover that Jesus attended, this is also not the only incident where he uh, cleanses the temple. You know, he would do it again later on, right before his crucifixion. In the book of Mark, we find an instance where Jesus cleanses uh, the Jerusalem temple during that last week, right before his crucifixion. Now we know at this point when he first comes in there, they don't really, they're not really ready to take him out. They're not really ready to take him down. You know, he's there. They, they look at him. Some of them probably laugh at him. They scoff a little bit at him, at what he does. They don't really do anything. But on that last visit, the one we probably think of probably more when we think about the, the temple cleansing, um, they were ready to, to kill him. They were ready to show him that, that you have to go. And it's, it's very fascinating that even though they had had two years or, or so to, to think about what they had done, they really didn't change at all. They didn't put these things away. They didn't do things any differently. They obviously didn't respect the, the teaching that he had, had brought down to, to them. He had attempted to show them previously that they were doing the wrong thing. In order for Christ to work in our lives, oftentimes he needs to clean house. Now, this house cleaning is not only to our benefit, it's also to the benefit of those who would come in the house. 
You know, you think about someone who, who, who cleans house, and one of the reasons you clean house is because you don't want friends when they come and visit to trip over toys that your kids leave, right? You don't want to have, you know, have a lawsuit on your hands because somebody tripped over a, a toy and fell down some steps, right? So this is the idea. You know, Jesus says you have to put these things away so that those who come into this house can clearly see who God is. They can clearly worship him. By you allowing these, these encumbrances, these hindrances to worship to stay, you are in effect disallowing these people from seeing who God is, from knowing him. Consider Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 13. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 13. We have a similar case where some people were um, telling people that, hey, if, if, if you have to eat this food or not eat this food, you have to observe this day in order to really be considered righteous before God. And so the Apostle Paul makes a few declarations here, beginning in verse 10. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. You know, at a later point, Jesus would say, woe to those who cause one of these little ones to stumble. And so we see this principle ringing true in his life that, hey, you guys, he's speaking to these guys in the temple. You are allowing, or, or again, you are causing or could be causing these people to stumble because they might be frustrated. They might come in with a bad attitude because of the way you're treating them. Stop it. Remove these things from, from your midst so that people can actually uh, worship God the way he had, had called them to. The truth here is that when we, when we respect Christ, uh, we respect the people for whom Christ died. We respect uh, those um, who, who, come before, who come to him and, and, and want to trust in him. And respect for those he died often calls us to put away habits and attitudes and practices that make it harder for, him to, for, for them to see him. Um, those who respect Christ also eat of the food that strengthens him and are consumed by the purpose for which he came. Let me say that, say that again. Those who respect Christ, they eat of the food that strengthens him and are consumed by the purpose for which Christ came. Again, go to verse 17. His disciples remember that, is, that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Christ's all-consuming purpose was to what? It was to do the will of his Father. It was to do what his father had commanded him to do when he came down to this earth. He calls those who follow him to be consumed by the same passion, to be consumed by the same ambition. Turn over again to John chapter 4. This is just a couple pages over. John chapter 4, verses 31 through 34. We see the disciples come to Jesus right after he had done a display there. They come to him and they say, you know, Jesus, it's time to eat. It's time to, to get a bite to eat. Verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Again, they don't understand what he's saying. I mean, obviously, he's not talking about, about food there. Jesus said to them, 
My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so Jesus is saying, my will, I mean, my purpose, my food is the will of my father. My, what, what I get full on, what I get filled with, what I find nourishment in is the will of my father. This is the same desire that he has for us. That we, might be con- that we might consume the Father's will so that we can be consumed by the Father's will. It's a very fa- fascinating concept because, again, it says here in verse 17, the disciples remembered that it was said of him that zeal for the Father's house would consume him. He was, they were quoting from uh, Psalm 69.9. I think it's up there. Maybe it's not. But it says there in that passage in John 69.9, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have, followed, have fallen on me. The second half of that verse reveals a beautiful thing about Christ's purpose. That not only does his zeal for the house of God consume him to the point where he expresses this anger, this indignation, but his zeal also drives him to the cross. It drives him to the point, to the place where the reproaches of even these men who were doing the wrong thing in that temple, even their sins would be on his shoulders. This verse teaches us another principle, that when we are consumed by the purposes of God to the point that we, are, we take delight in what he delights in, not only do we find joy in knowing him, but we also discover that we share in his pain. Uh, we share in his sufferings. The comforting peace, however, is that the ultimate pain is his to bear. It's, it's his to bear. He takes upon that all, on, him, all in, on himself. So not only does respect for Christ mean that we remember why he came, expect him to arrive at the right time, see ourselves and see the things that he sees the way he sees them, put away those things that keep us from knowing him more fully and more clearly, Um, eat of the food that strengthens him and be consumed by him and and the Father's will, but also respect for Christ gives me or causes me or leads me to have boldness to challenge by the authority of of God's word those who willfully teach falsehoods against him. Verses 18 through 21, back in John chapter 2. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Although there's, there's some debate about the, the date in which the rebuilding or the renovation effort started, if you recall, or if you don't recall, maybe you do or don't, but many years ago, back around five, I think what we talked about this in Sunday school, 589-ish, I think it was when it was, uh, B.C., uh, 586, I'm sorry. The temple was destroyed by the, the first temple, by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, right? He comes into town, and he takes the Jews in, into captivity, and in the process, he ransacks the temple and destroys it. Well, soon after that, well, not soon after, maybe about 70 or 80 years after that, what happens? We see Ezra, Zerubbabel, they come back, you know, under Cyrus's decree, and they're given the opportunity to rebuild the temple. Well, that was about four, 
something BC, many years later. And over time, you can only imagine that things had kind of broken down a little bit. You know, 300 years goes by and the temple needs a little work. And so Herod comes in, in order to kind of establish his name, he goes into a renovation effort. He kind of sets out to rebuild really the temple proper. And he kind of builds this really immaculate, the one you saw on the screen was actually what we, the, the image of what we have as Herod's temple. And so we see in that temple a lot of things fixed and, and renovated and improved uh, and, and made better. Up in the right upper corner there, you may wonder what that is, that's actually the area where the Roman soldiers and, and leaders and really the military officials would stay and, and really ensure that insurrections didn't break out. You know, that, that we didn't have, they didn't have rebellion on their hands. And so they were able to oversee what was going on and keep an eye on the people that were there. And of course, we see it again in that, that inner area where the actual, the temple proper is. So the reality is that, you know, these, these Jews, when they heard Jesus talking and say that he would, that, that the temple would be destroyed, you know, it took Herod about 46 years to rebuild the temple or to renovate the temple. They say to him, how can you say that you're going to rebuild this temple in three days when it took 46 years to build it. Who do you think you are? That's what they're saying. Now, this is really the first confrontation that Jesus had with the Pharisees. He'd have many others later. But here in John's Gospel, we see recorded his first confrontation with them. And in this confrontation, like those that would follow, um, the reality in, in the lives of these Pharisees is that they really didn't understand what Jesus was saying. They didn't understand what he was doing. And why is it that they didn't understand him? They didn't understand him because they didn't know him. They didn't know who he was. They, they didn't have a deep understanding of, of why he was there. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, kind of shed a little, a little bit of light on this. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. This is going well. I didn't know it was going to be up there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so he says to these, effectively, he's saying about these people who proclaim that they are, are teachers of the law, are adherents to the law, that they're actually lawless. They don't have the law. And, and the fact that they don't have the law, they don't know him. They, they work in a way that's consistent with those who do not know God. They didn't know him because their minds were clouded by a self-created idea of what God had for his people, uh, what God was doing. Uh, they were clouded by this this. This, this really poor or, or perverted understanding of the scriptures, wherein they actually heaped upon the people laws that God had never intended for them to follow. Just as Jesus spoke against Satan on a previous occasion, uh, he speaks against these men, challenging them with the truth that many of them would never fully understand. That even after his resurrection, they wouldn't understand. The truth that he was the one for whom this physical earthly temple was built. That earthly building was considered the place where God would cause his presence uh, to dwell and is with Israel, that they might come and worship him. What's fascinating is that Jesus talks about his body being a temple. 
And, and, and it's neat that his body was actually the place where God the Father, where God himself would dwell on earth among the people. But this temple obviously was different. It was animated. It was human, just like them. This temple was a lot, a lot different than stones that were built up in, around the area. This body that stood before them was, was much, much greater. He explains to them that even though this temple, his body would be destroyed, it wouldn't be man's hands that would raise it up again. It wouldn't be the hands or the effort of men that would bring his body back to life. Jesus says to them that he would raise his own body, that the Father, God himself, would raise his son. He used the authority of his name, the authority of who he was to challenge these men today as those who have him within us, who have him living within us, who have his word before us, we can stand boldly to challenge the, wrong, the growing number of those who, because they truly don't know him, teach lies concerning Christ. And there are a lot of them. There are a lot of, of, of false falsities and, and uh, false teachings that exist in this world. And so it's, it's our responsibility as we understand, as we have come to understand who God is, to challenge those who stand against him. Respect for Christ also motivates me to teach those who need to know what has been revealed to me or to us concerning him. Respect for Christ should motivate me to teach those who need to know what has been revealed about him. Verse 22, the disciples are responding here. It says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. His disciples who were present during this confrontation, in, in many, in many sense, senses, probably didn't understand what Jesus meant either by this statement that he would, this temple would be destroyed and raised in three days. Uh, in fact, even after his resurrection, they didn't completely understand he was referring back again to, to chapter uh, 10 of, of Psalm 16. It stated that Christ would not be abandoned to the place of the dead, that he would not see corruption or be far from his father forever, even though the demand of the cross was that he, for a time, be forsaken for our sins, he would not be punished for eternity. And so this is the promise that he's making to the disciples. This is the commitment he's making to these Pharisees that, hey, even though I die, I will rise again because this rising will prove and demonstrate that God has determined that he should not only exist, but that he should serve and be uh, the God over these, these people who were there. Um, the disciples would eventually come to understand these things. As a matter of fact, over in Matthew chapter 28, after they had, you know, been told by Jesus of who he was, and now he's been resurrected and and they've had a chance to see him and touch him after his resurrection. We see in Matthew 28, verses 19, 19 and 20, he tells them to go therefore and make disciples of, the, of all nations, baptizing, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so now the disciples, as we saw there in verse 22 of John chapter 2, they realize when everything was all said and done, that this was spoken of in the past, that what he was doing had a full purpose and full prophecy behind it, complete prophecy behind it. And so now that they've understood this, Christ is giving them the commission, the great commission, 
to go out and teach these things, to help others understand what these truths are. And so respect for Christ requires that we not only, again, remember why he came, uh, remember, or not only remember why he came, but, but eat. No, expect him to arrive at the right time. Kind of missed it up a little bit. Um, and also see us the way he sees us and not only put away those things that keep us from knowing him and eat of the food and be consumed by the will of the Father. What was the C one? Challenge by the authority of his word, those who speak falsehoods against Christ. Also to teach those who need to know him what has been revealed concerning him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we again are humbled by the fact that you and your word reveal yourself and that you, through this truth, help us to see the change that you desire in our lives. And so, God, we pray that as we just continue to reflect throughout the book of John on the deity of Christ, the oneness of the Son with the Father, of your Son with you. God, we pray that we would um, live lives that honor him, that respect, that demonstrate a respect for him, and that show the world and reveal to the world that, that you are the God who cares and that you are the God who heals and who hears. God, we love you, and again, we thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.